people will say they've killed themselves or it's a suicide or they're ending their life. No, no. Their diagnosis, the disease process, that's ending their life. This option is allowable after protocols have been followed, one of which is that you have to have a terminal diagnosis. That right there says that this is not allowed unless you are already dying. This person is already dying. They are just choosing to end their pain and suffering. This is the Dishing Doulas podcast with Joanne Hahn and Karen Hendrickson of Death Doula Network International. Changing the world's approach to death and dying, one conversation at a time. Seriously, let's talk. Whether you're an end-of-life professional, a family caregiver, or you simply want to gain comfort with end-of-life matters, we're here to help expand your comfort with our shared mortality, end-of-life planning, and the important conversations. The views shared in this podcast are solely those of the hosts and our guests and are provided for information purposes only. Be sure to consult with your own healthcare and legal professionals for any personal medical or legal advice. We're really excited to be here today with Gabriel Jimenez, known as Gabby. Gabby's a hospice nurse, end-of-life doula, death-and-dying educator, an author, and a blogger. She also has a large Facebook community that embraces the conversation about death, dying, and grief. Her goal is to teach and inspire others to do this work and to help change the fear and uncertainty that has a tendency to hover around death. Her belief is that education is key. And even if it just relieves the fear of one person sitting at the bedside of someone who is dying, that could make a difference for them. Working in this field has increased her appreciation for all of the magic and wonder life has to offer. And while she is present for a lot of death, what she really sees is strength, bravery, love, faith, culture, tradition, and in most cases, a life very well lived. She aspires to have a well-lived life and encourages those around her to do the same. Gabby, we're so pleased to have you with us today. Thank you for having me today. I think you guys are awesome, and I'm honored to be here. Gabby, if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about you and your background. Well, I am a hospice nurse. That was what I was first, and then transitioned into becoming a doula. And my reason for that was because... As a hospice nurse, I am allotted a specific amount of time with specific protocols in what I can do to to help our patients and families. And I feel like I have sort of been muzzled in a way, like you can only do this and you can't do this and you can't communicate with them after the person has died. Well, my heart won't allow me to work that way. I wanted to find a way to do what I'm doing, but to be able to truly honor both the person in the bed as well as those at the bedside. And long after, being a doula has offered me the luxury of time, the ability to truly utilize the gifts that I think that I now have, and the ability to also be there on their grief journey, which is such a big part of the whole process. And so I am a nurse and I am a doula. I'm a better nurse because I'm a doula. And as a doula, I can't be a nurse. So I have to know my boundaries. But as a doula, I get to truly be present and savor the sacredness of end of life in a way that I don't think the hospice team is able to do. My dream would be to have it all come together because I think the doula would be an awesome ad, but it is separate. So I am both a hospice nurse and a doula, and I kind of combine them. But for the purpose of today's conversation and just what I do as a doula, I have really made it mostly about ritual and ceremony and choreographing a death that leaves the person who's saying goodbye a little fuller in their heart, knowing that they've honored them beautifully and that their grief journey is a little more gentle. I love how you put that choreographing the end. That's beautiful. 
That's what it feels like to me. Like when I sit down and say, what matters most? What is it that you need? How do you want to be heard? And when they can give me the things that matter most and I can hand it to the people who love them and they can bring that to fruition and honor their wishes, it's it's a choreograph. We're choreographing this beautiful last dance for all of them and see it as a last dance. Like that's what choreographing means to me. It's It's putting it all together, but it's not about me. It's not about me at all. I'm just the facilitator and I'm okay with that. As a hospice nurse, I felt a little so uh, selfish early on. Like these are my patients. This is my stuff. The doula role has taught me to be more aware of the fact that it really isn't about me at all, that I'm kind of behind the scenes. And I like that. I've made peace with that. The big difference, I think, from in a doula role where you have the opportunity to almost support and kind of lead from behind in guidance and helping with the choreographing, as as you say. And in your experience, I'm sure you would also say that in doing this work, the outcomes are significantly better in relation to how people remember the death of their person. You said it spot on. I think if we could help soften the death itself, the grief journey will also be softer, especially if we give them the tools to provide the care. Because in their heart, I think their takeaway is the reminder and knowledge that they provided beautiful care for someone they love. And that's what I think our role is. People will remember how somebody died. And that will stay with us forever and ever. And like you say, if we can soften that, it makes a huge difference. My mom had a terrible death. Over a period of 10 days, she suffered immensely. And I'm going to remember that for the rest of my life. I'm sorry that you had to experience that. And unfortunately, you're not alone. There are so many people that are taking away memories that will scar them. Mm -hmm. And I want to change that. And so we know that over the course of all of your experiences that you have been involved in a large way with respect to medical aid in dying. And can you tell us about that work that you do and the gifts that you bring, what you see in relation to what people might need, and how you've had the opportunity to make a difference in that kind of journey? Well, this is one of my favorite topics I've been doing it since it became legal here in California. And in California, we call it the End of Life Option Act, which we have shortened to ALOA, E-O-L-O-A. I have one patient that referred to it as ALOHA, which I kind of like that too. I think the first thing I needed to do in order to do this work right is to understand the why, the decision behind the choice. Why is somebody choosing to do that. And once I really understood that, it helped me to support this option in a really big way. Again, I'm a hospice nurse, so I have seen suffering. I have witnessed long, painful death. And I don't think any human should do that. We treat our animals way more respectfully than we do our humans. And we would never allow our animals to suffer. And yet we are for lack of a better word, selfish in that we want to hold on to our people. We want to have them stay longer because we are not ready to let them go. Therefore, we are willing to allow them to suffer. And in many ways, that person lying in the bed is willing to suffer because they don't want to burden those at the bedside. This option has allowed people to choose their terms, the when, the where, the how. When you are given a terminal diagnosis, your autonomy, your choice, and your voice is taken from you, right? Nobody wants to die. No one wants to have an illness. No one wants to have this process that happens. But when you are able to make a decision like this, you are being gifted back your autonomy. And that's how I see it. I wrote a book called Dignity Day, and I'd like to read it. There is a section called Put Yourself in Their Shoes. Can I read a portion of it? Yeah, please do. Uh, 
Imagine being the person who is told they are going to die far sooner than they had hoped because of a terminal diagnosis that will more than likely violate their body with pain, physical, emotional, and spiritual, agitation, anxiety, restlessness, fatigue, weakness, confusion, and or fear. That is a heavy news. That is heavy news and will take its toll. You try to be hopeful and optimistic. You try to reassure the person who who loves you that you are okay or fine. They see you. They know how hard this is for you, but they are also holding out hope, not willing to discuss the negative aspects of your experience, not willing to accept that perhaps you do not want to do this anymore, not willing to give up for one second that maybe, just maybe, you will get through this. Time is no longer yours to manage. Your remaining time is not in your hands. You have no control. You are not, you are at the mercy of the illness, the diagnosis, the symptoms, the physical changes, the emotional exhaustion, and the spiritual tug of war that you will experience every single day. Everyone around you wants more time. You want more time, but not like this, not riddled with pain or discomfort, not having to wait day after day for the inevitable to come. And this goes on. It's about putting yourself in their shoes so that you could appreciate the choice. It's brave to decide to do this. It is a difficult decision. And yet at the same time, it's the one thing that will truly give that person peace. So the first person that I got to do this for was for a woman. This is back in, I think, 2015 or the end of 2015 or 2016. And she was suffering. She couldn't walk two steps without being so out of breath she wanted to pass out. She had such bad shortness of breath that she couldn't get up and off the couch. She had to just sit there. Her pain was everywhere. Nothing we gave her worked. She had the opposite reaction to almost every medication that we we offered her. She was miserable and she was waiting for this to become legal in California. And as soon as it did, she said, I'm ready. That was my first time. And at that time, it was 99 capsules that we had to open up one at a time and scrape out the powder into a little dish. And I remember sitting there with each capsule with the doctor, scraping it out and putting it in this dish and and realizing as each capsule was opening the, the reality of what we were doing. And it was all so much for me because this was big. I was new at this and, and it was a little bit scary and intimidating. And yet at the same time, I was feeling so much peace and, and almost joy for her because I knew that we were doing something that was going to give her peace. And she was so grateful for this. And I remember I followed the doctor as he brought the medication to her and he sat down in front of her and he said, are you ready? And she said, I'm ready. And she drank the medication and she looked over at me and she said, just as it started to really take effect, she says, I'm going now. And I said, goodbye. And she says, thank you in a whisper. And she died and I cried so much because I had been with her for over a year. And and that has evolved over time. I've done well over a hundred where I have witnessed people taking these medications. And each time I'm so honored to be present because I know the peace it's bringing. And if I can help a family member feel a little bit more comfortable with the choice made by someone they love, then that brings me peace. If I can educate them and give them the tools to help support the person they love, that makes me happy. And so what I like to do is I like to see the family before the day of ingestion. If I have met them before, then of course I have a relationship with them. But if I don't, for instance, I'm doing one today and I met with them yesterday. And I sat down with them. I told them what to expect. I told her, what will, what will you feel? What will it look like? What, what are you going to experience? And then I sat with the family and I said, so sometimes the body moves. Sometimes there's some sounds. This is what's going to happen. And I helped them to understand. And then I gave them a job to make a playlist for her to listen to tonight. And so they're all going to work on that. And and it was this beautiful opportunity. And I suggested they each take turns one at a time to just really sit with her, you know, over the next hours. And so when I talked to them this morning, I said, how did it go? And she said, Gabby, I love my playlist. 
And, and I love that I can be a part of this and help support both ends, but also not just the person who chooses to do it or the people who love and support them, but also the people who don't support this act in general, because there is a strong negative reaction to this, which I respect their feelings, but many of them, they want to be able to stay true to their beliefs while still honoring someone they love. And that's a tug of war. How do we do that? How can I support my sister, brother, mother, father, who's choosing to do this, which I get that they're struggling, but I don't think this is the right choice. How can I be there for them? Well, you just don't walk away. You can still support someone you love and hold their hand and let them know that they are loved and stay true to your belief. Now, I had mentioned earlier when we talked earlier about a poem. Is it okay if I read that poem? Sure. It's called We Will Not Walk Away. When someone has received a terminal diagnosis and they've been told they have less time, what this translates most to them is that they have been moved to the front of the line, a line no one wants to stand in, a line that can often bring fear, a line that changes everything for them and lets them know that death is near. So many things are taken from them, most importantly, their autonomy and choice leaving them dependent on everyone and everything, no longer having a voice. So if given an opportunity to say goodbye to pain, to end their suffering and to feel free again, they need to know we support them, that we will not walk away. They need to know that whatever they choose, we are here to stay. I think there is a way to have everybody there supporting them at the bedside, whether they believe or support personally the choice itself. It's not going against your personal beliefs when you stay at the bedside of someone who's chosen to do this. And I guess I want to make that my work. I want to help people understand the why. Karen and I are both proponents of of medical assistance in dying up here in Canada. We facilitate peer-to-peer groups. and, And one of the groups I personally facilitate is people considering made, and they say Quite often that once they have chosen their date, there's a huge weight that lifts off of them because that, as you said, gives them control over when they're going to die. And it also gives them the opportunity to live whatever time they have left to the max. And it's such a controversial topic. It's very controversial. And I actually can appreciate and respect that. I'm not in any way trying to change someone's mind about it. I just don't want them to walk away from the person they love. But it is very controversial. And I think what it is, and you made a really good point about picking the date is so important to them because then they say, okay, it's going to be on Wednesday. It's Monday now. That gives me two more days to really sit with the people I love. But it also gives them an end in sight a confirmation that they will no longer feel this way. And that is freedom. And there's just as many people who get to the date, who have the medications, who have everything in place and choose not to do it. And that's okay too. Maybe just knowing that they have an option gives them peace. I'm not going to push someone to do it. I don't care if they never do it. I just like knowing that we offered and facilitated the opportunity to honor their wishes and to allow their voice to be heard and to give them their autonomy back. Like anything, though, people deserve to have choice, educated choice. And if we can help direct them towards the true facts about what made is all about as opposed to all of the myths that are out there that they're able to say okay well that's for me or maybe you know I don't want to try that it's about choice and in anything we do we've become such a society of judging people because they think or feel or believe or do things differently than we do and I just think we have to get away from the idea that we get to tell a person how to live or how to die I don't think we should do that. I I think we can ask questions. I think we can offer curiosity. Why would you choose to do this? Well, let me explain that to you. At least ask the person. But to criticize and judge and insult is, 
well, it's hurtful and mean, and they're already going through so much. My Facebook page, that's got a pretty large following on there. And when I put something on there about medical aid and dying, originally, probably about last year, I think, I would have people take what I posted and put it on their, I want to call them their anger pages, right? Because they have a lot of anger and hate out there. And it was happening all the time to the point where I didn't want to put what I believe out there. That has since changed. I mean, I think there might still be, but not nearly as much. So that makes me feel like maybe there's some softening in the controversy, I'd like to think, because I don't receive as much negative comments as I used to. Now, maybe they're just not following the page, and that's probably better off for everyone. But I'd like to believe that maybe we are collaboratively coming together to help create a more open and less judgmental society of allowing people to make choices based on what they need and what is good for them. And really, when we think about it from the basis of our humanity, what what you would typically be encouraging someone to do if it didn't align with their personal beliefs, but their person that they loved and cared about was making the choice, was recognizing that what matters most to us is how we show up in our love for one another, regardless of whether we agree. There's no better gift. Well, and we talk about honoring someone's wishes and, and listening and letting them know that they've been heard. But if we speak out against their decisions, then isn't that the opposite of that? So I think that, yes, absolutely. I think we just need to be able to be supportive. And one of the most important questions I think we can ask somebody who is dying, right? Look at everything they're going through. They don't need to be burdened with everyone else's response, opinions, or thoughts on their death. They're already going through so much. What if instead we can say something like, what do you need from me? What is the best way that I can be here for you? And it could be maybe just don't be in the room with me right now. I think our energies aren't working, but I appreciate you respecting that. Just respect me. But if we ask them, what can I do for you? How can I be of service or of help or of comfort for you? and allow that person to tell us in such a way that we can honor that, then look what we have done. We've changed the way that they're going to die. Yeah. Really. There's a a phrase that I've heard somewhere along the line, Gabby, that says people don't choose to die. They choose to end their pain and suffering. How does that sit with you? I think that's exactly what this is. People will say they've killed themselves or it's a suicide or they're ending their life. No. No, their diagnosis, the disease process, that's ending their life. This option is allowable after protocols have been followed, one of which is that you have to have a terminal diagnosis. That right there says that this is not allowed unless you are already dying. This person is already dying. They are just choosing to end their pain and suffering. And doesn't that seem fair? And I think that's where the disconnect is. People look at this option as murder or suicide or quitting or giving up or not fighting hard enough. How much more do you want a person to fight? Their body is usually, when they make this decision, is usually riddled with pain. Not just physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. Everything they're going through is painful. And all they're asking is to end that. If they had an option that said, if you take this pill, you could actually live six months longer. Of course, they're going to choose that. They also want more time. But this option, this legal option, after following the protocols, allows them to no longer have pain or suffering. And down in California, you have to take it orally, correct? You can take it orally or rectally. Up here, it's, well, we have two options. One is orally, which is very seldomly used, and the other is by intravenous. So we have a team, a nurse and a doc will come in. The nurse will start the IV, and then the doctor will come in and administer the medications through that. 
I think you guys are the only ones that do the IV, except for maybe I want to say Switzerland, I think is, is it, but I think you guys are pretty much the only one that does the IV. Isn't that correct? I'm not sure. You know, that seems easier. It's very hard. You have a person who either struggles with swallowing or the nausea and they take these meds. It's hard for them. I'm grateful for the rectal option as well, because then they don't have to worry about the swallowing. I haven't drank any of it, but it doesn't taste good. You know, the feelings moments before they die can be difficult. You know, I mean, it passes quickly, but there's a burning sensation in the throat. You feel your throat closing. It's not comfortable. And one of the things that I do as I'm sitting with them is when I know that they're having that happen, I'll say, okay, just breathe, breathe in through your nose, out through your mouth, breathe in through your nose, out through your mouth, and and it passes. So I get them through that. But yeah, to be able to do it intravenously would make things so much easier for everyone. But for now, I'm just grateful to have the option. So once they take the medication, approximately how long does it take to take effect? Well, it varies with each person. Um, Earlier on, a couple years ago, we had them go 16 hours. One was 22 hours. And that's a very long time. They've now, at least for us, have introduced um, amtriptyline and phenobarbital into the combination. And I believe that was the magic to this combination of medications. It has allowed it to happen more peacefully and quickly. So usually they become unconscious in less than 10 minutes and on average take their last breath about an hour after. The longest I have had in the last year is two and a half hours, maybe three. The quickest has been 15 minutes, but on average, it's less than an hour. It has changed significantly over the years. Well, that's amazing. With the IV up here in Canada, it usually takes between eight and 10 minutes. Which is so much easier for the family because the waiting part is hard. And I think that they romanticize this. Oh, they're going to take this medication and then they're going to die and everything's going to be great. The first hour is okay because there's a lot of talking there and hopefully a good playlist. And I love to engage. Tell me some stories. I want to know who they are. I want to hear everything about them. And so I I really try to make that time valuable to everyone. But after the first hour, now back in the days when it was 12 hours, even I was exhausted. I have waited that the longest I've waited is 13 hours with someone and I was so exhausted and I didn't eat. I didn't take care of myself. I actually bring snacks now because I've learned, but that waiting is super hard on people and it is not a beautiful death like they want it to be. And so now that we are changing things and it is a lot quicker, it it is what people assume it to be, imagine it to be. Would you say that Once we've been approved and we've set our date, in some respects, actually, this is a gift both to the individual and their people, because now that there's a date set, oftentimes it will call the people that care about us to do and say the things, because now they know there's a definite end happening soon. And so I want to get the visit in. I want to write the letter. I want to be present. I want to do the things. And so, in fact, sometimes there's sort of this elevation of richness of life that happens in those that little bit of time between the time data set and the time the death occurs. Would you say that that's common? Yeah, I say you've probably read or, or heard me say this before. I really want to encourage people to do and say the things prior to a diagnosis so that you don't find yourself at the bedside doing that because that happens so often. But there is something beautiful about a person being able to say, pick the day. So they've been going through all this. They've tried every treatment. They've tried every medication. They get up every day thinking, okay, well, I can do this. And that person is all also anxious and having a hard time. And then they witness the people they love having a hard time. And everybody that's at the bedside is just waiting. It's always this waiting, right? Something's going to change. Maybe they, they won't have pain today. I wonder what it's going to be like today. But when a, when they've chosen this, 
and a date is picked. Let's say it's three days from now. In those three days, it's wrapped beautifully with love and this gentle patience that maybe got lost along the way. And they get to say things differently and things that needed to be finished get finished. And the person who's making this choice feels a sense of peace. The energy is lifted. You know, that that endless hours of waiting and unknowing is removed. Giving a date to to taking these medications and to ending the pain and suffering, it brings peace. In fact, almost every time I walk into the room on the day of digestion, there is a, they're, they're almost happy. You know, that it's a celebration and it gives a whole new meaning to celebration of life. Right. Because we think of a celebration of life as something that we we honor someone who has died. But what if we offer them a celebration of life before they've died in those moments before ingestion? That is a celebration of life. And that person taking them is it's like elevated a little bit. And everyone is sitting around them saying, I love you and we're proud of you and and we will tell your story. We will say your name. Your legacy will be shared with all who, who hear from us. And yeah, it's a celebration of life. I had the honor of witnessing a maid death with one of my very close friends back in 2018. And it was exactly that. She died at home. There were 16 of us around her bedside. Her husband, her two kids, and the two dogs are on the bed with her. We all got a chance to say our goodbyes. We sang, we laughed, we cried. And then the provision was, was administered. The first medication made her fall asleep. And then, you know, it, it was a beautiful, beautiful way to die. I love that. I love when people gather around. I tend to do a lot of ritual. I, I remember one that I did that I really loved. I gave each person in the room a candle. And I gave her a candle and I said, so with each, I'm going to light your candle and I want you to put it next to her on her bed, kind of around her on her bed. And with each lighting of the candle and putting it down, I want you to say a word about her that, that resonates with you. And so they each took a turn and they all said this words like bravery and strength. And some used lots of words and they'd put the candle. So here she is. She's lying in the bed. She's had her hair done. She has on her favorite nightgown. Everyone she loves is around the room and all the candles are lit around her on the bed. And it came to her time and she picked up her candle and she lit it. And she said, loved, I feel loved. And then she just sat there for a moment and she said, now what do I do? And I said, you can blow out your candle. So she blows out the candle and she said, now what? And I said, now we're going to help you blow out your real candle. And so we all removed the candles. We gave her the medication and she died within 15 minutes and everyone felt so much peace. But the beautiful part was that no one blew out the other candles. Instead, we placed them precariously around the room. So the room had started dimming because it was about six o'clock at night. And so all you see really were the faces of those in the room, her lying peacefully in her bed and little bits of flickering candlelight all the way around. It was so beautiful. And that's their memory. That's their takeaway. And she, she got to hear from each one of them. It was so beautiful. And I left there thinking, I get to do this. I get to do this work. How blessed am I? What an honor it is to sit at the bedside. What a beautiful, beautiful ending that is. Yeah. People ask me all the time, how do you do this work? How do I not? I know that not everybody can, but it's not just death. I don't just see death. I see faith and culture and tradition and bravery and strength and courage on so many levels. And I see love. And I am reminded each time how lucky I am to be alive right now and that I do not want to waste a moment of it. 
I do some volunteering in a long-term care facility. And when we walk in and we see some of the people sitting at the tables, unaware of their surroundings, they really can't communicate. They're just not there. And they're sitting there and then their people will come and visit them. It's painful. It's it It hurts my heart to see that because it's hard on the people coming to visit. I think they feel a sense of obligation. My mom's in long-term care. I have to go and see her regularly or whatever that is. I think medical assistance or medical aid in dying is a wonderful option or alternative to that. I just went through the exact same thing that you're talking about. I went to see a patient in a facility and I walked by the entertainment room and they were all in a circle and half of them were asleep in their chair or not aware of what was going on. And it's a room full of grown adults not living a joyful life. And they wouldn't qualify for for medical aid and dying because they're not cognitive enough to make that decision. And so I can't help but wonder, is there a sense of awareness within that says, this is my life? I mean, I hope not. But for those that love them and come every day, I've seen and heard the questions. How much longer does she have to go through this? Does she know me? Would it matter if I didn't come? And I always think, yes, it would matter to you. Yes, of course. But it's painful for people. And there's millions of people that are going through this every single day. How can we treat our human beings with a little more dignity and respect? And and how can we also support the people who love them? I think we need to find a way to do that as well, because it's really hard. It's very hard to go into a facility and visit your mom day after day, knowing that she has absolutely no idea who you are. Within Canada right now, there's a, a large push by our advocacy organization called Dying with Dignity Canada to have our government consider legalizing advance requests. So as part of your advance uh, medical directives, identifying that should I become diagnosed with dementia, Alzheimer's, what have you, and this level of capacity or incapacity occurs for me, I would like to receive MAID. There is a great push within surveying our country that says many people believe that this is an appropriate thing for us to have a right to for this reason. I think that's wonderful. I have a whole thing written in my stack of paperwork that says I don't want to live my rest of my life that way. And if there are options, I've given options, you know, I give you permission to do this. Mm -hmm. But I I think that's wonderful. I think that if we're a little more proactive, because we can't foresee the future, we don't know how our aging is going to take place. And so if we can make a decision early on, and I think we should make those decisions early on, then imagine the difference that can make in our own life and death, but also those who love us. I personally live the experience of a mom with dementia in long-term care. Yeah, It's heart-wrenching. And my my mom is in that in-between space of, of confusion and knowing things are not right, but knowing enough to have a lot of agitation and anxiety as a result of it. So, you know, as a daughter, I sometimes find myself wishing she would get to the place where she knows nothing. And how sad is that? I can appreciate that, though. I think I would rather them not know. If they could be oblivious to what we see, at least that would bring me some comfort. I'm sorry that you're going through that. So for you, Gabby, what do you think are, say, two of the most important things that you would want people to learn from this conversation today or from any conversation with respect to medical aid and dying? That's a good question. I think first would be if you love someone who is choosing to do this, At the very least, sit down with them and ask them why. What prompted that decision? Listen to them, not to fix them or change their mind, but to hear them and validate their words. And if you can, don't walk away. Be with them. Offer to be with them on that day. And I think it's also important to know 
that, well, these medications are a legal overdose and they are going to end the life. The diagnosis, the illness, the disease process was already ending their life. These medications end suffering and pain on multiple levels. And if you can just learn to see it from that perspective, maybe you will be a little more open to someone making that choice to do it. One thing that Joanne and I have seen in some of the peer-to-peer support work that we do is many circumstances and situations where either the individual asks their loved ones not to let people know that they have died through the process of medical aid in dying, or the loved ones feel uncomfortable letting people know that that is how sort of the death was enhanced or what have you. What do you say about that? Great question. So I think it's equal parts of both. I think some people are shouting from the rooftops, my mom did this and I'm so proud of her and it was such a beautiful experience. I had a woman tell me that she told her neighbor her mom was going to be doing this and the neighbor started screaming at her and telling her how horrible she is and that she was going to report her for murdering her mother. And it was just this whole big thing, which caused so much distress to her. And she's like, I never should have told her. And I said that day, there are certain people you can tell this to and certain people you can't. And you have to learn that pretty quickly. You don't have to tell anyone. This is your story to tell. But for the people the family members, the friends, whomever is present, whoever knows, for those who don't have someone to talk to, their grief journey is going to be a little difficult. One of the things that we offer, and I'm not sure about other hospices, but we have created a special bereavement group for the families and friends and loved ones of the person who took the medications so they could sit in community with others who have experienced the same thing. It's not put on the death certificate that they took it. No one ever has to know, and it's not our story to tell. But if you don't have someone to talk about it with, then you carry that inside and it sits like a giant lump of coal. People need to talk about it. They need to release everything that they just experienced because it's not your normal average death. It is a hastened death, but it is also beautiful. Now, the people who have told others, who shout from the rooftops, they can't wait to tell people because for them, it was freedom and relief and peace for someone they love and they, they're excited about it. But it is a very fine line and people will react harshly. Caregivers, please understand, I'm not disrespecting caregivers, but there are many caregivers, especially ones who have been with this family for a long time, who are very against it. It may be faith related and they talk the family out of it or they tell the patient what they're doing is murdering and and they say hurtful words and they cause even more distress. It is not our place to intervene when someone makes a decision like this. And so it's very important that we find out right away the ones who might not be on board and politely ask them to leave. And if you do have a, a caregiver or even a family member who will probably not be supportive, they should not be there and perhaps not even told. And when someone does die after taking this, you do not have to tell anyone what happened. No one ever has to know. But if you don't, you do need, in my opinion, someone to talk to about it. Oh, absolutely. It's the disenfranchised grief. It's like the drug overdose, the murder, the suicides, the child loss, all of those losses that people don't want to talk about. And they're so specialized because it is different than a natural death. And you're absolutely right. You need to talk about it. You need to work through it. And if you don't, it'll be a burden that you carry for a long time. I I want people to talk about it. And There are places. I love that our hospice is doing that. I am imagining and hoping that others are as well, but there are groups. And I also know that most hospices will offer bereavement to people, whether they use their services or not. 
So I really encourage whoever's listening today to find someone to talk about it. It's great to hear that your hospice offers that specialized sort of group support. We're fortunate here in Canada to have a couple of organizations that do this as well. Bridge C14 is one that offers peer-to-peer -to -peer support uh, for individuals either supporting someone, choosing or what have you, both before and after, and, and provides grief support for um, loved ones later, which I think is fabulous, and also made family support services. So there are two organizations that are specifically focused on that in Canada, because it is, as you say, it's different, period. It's different. You guys are very progressive in that way, and you definitely have a different sense of care and respect for well, far more than we do, I think, especially your elderly. But in this regard, re relative to medical aid and dying, I love the fact that you have made it more approachable, more um, comfortable to talk about, and that you do offer so many resources. I hope that we do as well. Compassionandchoices.org is a great organization. Um, the Academy of Medical Aid and Dying is a great organization. Um, so we do have those resources. I'm constantly trying to promote them because I think what they can offer people is beneficial. And so we're getting there as well. And I do hope that the hospices that support medical aid and dying, or in our case, End of Life Option Act, um, that they offer that as well, because I think families need to have some place to talk about their experience. And I think it's fair to say that in Canada as well, even though we have these resources, there's a lot of ease and access to information through some of the organizations that are bringing education and information and factual information to community and to the general public are great. We still have a lot of misinformation, a lot of misunderstanding, and that's why Joanne and I both do the work that we do and why we're always so encouraged when we meet others, not just in our country, but in other countries who are also helping to support individuals in making these choices and helping to guide them along the way, but also to sharing the information and education. Informed decisions help us in relation to, you know, maybe it doesn't align with us personally in relation to our personal values or our beliefs, but, you know, good information helps us to be less judgmental, I think, and maybe put us in this place of being able to simply love our people and support them in whatever choice they make. Because really that's what, at the end of the day, that's what it comes down to. Choice. I agree with you completely. And I think that we have to find a way to come together. We tend to separate ourselves with borders and lines like, well, this is our space, but what if we came together? What if we took each other's hand and said, Hey, how can we help you, you know, to do this better? to provide a, a kinder, more compassionate care and a respect for anyone who is going through this process. Well, whether or not they choose to take the medical aid and dying medications or not, just the dying process alone, if we could just be more supportive, if we can offer more resources, if we could collaboratively come together to say, you're not doing this alone, we've got you. What a difference that would make. I think we all need to remember that the dying process is about the dying person. It's not about us. I think both go through something, but they're different enough that they need to be separated in our response to them. And and what I want to make sure we do less of is burdening the dying person with our reaction to their death. And that's something we need more help with. I witnessed that a lot. The person at the bedside letting the person who is dying know just how this is affecting them. How can they die a peaceful death when that is weighing heavy on them? That means that we need to make sure that we support those people at the bedside even more because clearly they're struggling. Our, our support is twofold. There are two different things going on here that are equally as important. One being more final, of course, which is death. But what they both take with them is can change if we intervene and if we do better. I want us to do better. Yeah. My mom died in 2014. She chose to stop dialysis. So the doc said she's got about 10 days. Medical assistance in dying was not legal here in Canada back then. And my mom suffered a very painful, long, drawn-out death, one of the worst experiences of my life. Had medical assistance in dying been an option, she would have chosen that. 
So that's part of my little journey on why being such a strong advocate for MAID. Fast forward to my friend that went in 2018 very peacefully. If we can make that ending better for somebody, then I think we've done our job. Absolutely. And you are an advocate based on your own experience, which means your voice could be a little bit louder. And I think we need to hear you. I think it's a good example of us evolving, making things more comfortable for others. That's a good example of us doing better. And I think Medical Aid and Dying, End of Life Option Act, Death with Dignity, whatever each place is calling it, at the end of the day, that is us honoring humans, removing suffering and pain, and offering people peace at the end of life in a way that they deserve. Yeah, I don't think anybody wakes up in the morning and goes, okay, I want to die today. They give a lot of thought to it. And I don't think the loved ones realize how much thought is is put into that decision. And that's why when people talk about this decision, I use the word brave because it is a brave decision, right? But it's not a frivolous decision. Mm-hmm. They Just like you said, they didn't wake up and say, okay, I'm going to do this today. They They got to a point where they decided, I don't want to feel this way anymore. And that was with thought. This isn't a frivolous decision. This is a well thought out plan. After all the other thought out plans didn't work. This is the last resort. And this is the difference between pain and peaceful. One of the the peer to peer groups I facilitate is the, the people that are considering it. We do it over Zoom, and everybody looks fine. They do not look like they're sick or they're dying. And I think that complicates things for for the onlookers. It's like, Gabby, you look great. How can you be in such pain? How could you want to end your life when you look the way you do? Oh, my God. I just heard someone say that the other day. He said to his mom, but mom, you still look good. That's because she is trying to make sure that you see her look good. But what's happening inside it's a whole different picture. And I think you made a really good point. If they look okay, why would they do this? But that's because you can't see between the layers. And the layers is where the difficulty, the pain, the struggle, where that rests. And sometimes we paint a better picture so that others are not, again, burdened by what we're experiencing. But if you knew what someone was going through, if you could feel, if you could personally feel their pain, Would it help you to understand this choice better? If you could see them suffering physically, if they didn't put on a great act, would you be more comfortable with their choice? I think that that, that's a big thing sometimes that we don't necessarily always appreciate. The fact that no matter even what I see of you physically, I will never, ever be able to feel and experience what you are feeling and experiencing in your situation or circumstances. Absolutely. And that goes with everything. Grief. I mean, this is a good example. I think my brother died and he died tragically. It was unexpected. It was 18 days in the ICU and it was horrible for me. And I remember I took some time off work. I went back to work. I walked into a a room to see a patient. There was a young man. He was about my brother's age lying in the bed. And there was a young woman sitting next to it and she was crying. And I walked in. I thought, okay, this is my first patient I'm seeing after my own experience of death and dying and grief. Took in a deep breath and I walked over and I had to portray poise and, and comfort and peace. And she looks up at me and she says, how do I tell my brother goodbye? And I knew at that moment that I had to keep it together. I couldn't let her see what I was going through because my grief is mine. I didn't want to put that on her. But also in order to do this work, we have to hide what we're going through. We are all going through stuff too. Even our own reaction to what we're we're witnessing. So people don't know what we're experiencing. People don't see what's happening underneath the facade. I sat down next to her and I said, 
I know exactly how to do this. Let me help you. And I sat with her, holding it in, sobbing like a baby afterwards. But I think in general, we are all experiencing something. We walk into a room and we think, gosh, the traffic was horrible. I've had a rough day. This is happening. This is happening. We sit down and we kind of take our energy out on everyone else because look how happy they all look. They're fine. But we don't know what they're going through. We don't know if one of them visits their mother day after day in a dementia unit or one just lost a family member or one maybe they've lost their home because they can't afford it or everyone's going through something. And I think that we have to be a little more sensitive just because we can't see it doesn't mean it's not there. Gabby, I love how you just said to the lady, I know how to do this as opposed to, I know how you feel. I never say that because I don't know how they feel. But a lot of people do. Yeah. A lot of people say, I know how you feel. No, you don't. And I'm not going to pretend to. I know how I feel going through something similar that you have. So let me just tell you that I know how to do this. Yeah. I'll tell you what worked for me. But this is your journey. Love that. So, you know, we often hear and, and often say, you know, death is our greatest teacher. How does that land for you? It's the truth. I have a t-shirt I've made. It says death is, is my motivational speaker. I am a very different person than I was 10 years ago. And I contribute that to the work that I do. I have such a respect for life. And I try to savor it. I'm constantly a work in progress relative to that because I can be weighted down by the heaviness. But I think that what death teaches me is that we only get this one chance here. This is it. Mm -hmm. And we have to do it better. I also think about the story my granddaughters will tell about me one day. I want to live a life that makes the story far more fun. When my mom died, she was given a year diagnosis. And this is way before I knew anything about this. And she was told she had a year left to live. So I sat down next to her in the bed and I said, mom, okay, you have a year left to live. Let's do something. Let's go somewhere. Let's make this the best last year of your life. And she says, oh, Gabby, you always see things through rose colored glasses. Like, okay, well, she's right. But then she literally pulled the covers up to her. She stayed in bed for that year. And a year later, she died. That was her choice. Now, I kind of just walked away from that. I I didn't take it with me. I didn't think about it again. But the more I started doing this work, I thought I have two choices. I can pull the covers up to my neck or I could throw them off the bed, jump out and say, let's do this and really savor it and have fun and 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 learn new things and give reasons to smile and Find joy in every day, even on the difficult days. Death has taught me that life is fragile. It is unpredictable. And it could be a little messy, and that's okay. But I am not going to let it get me down. And I'm not going to miss out on stuff. And I'm I'm going to take better care of me because I want it to last a little longer. That's beautiful, Gabby. Thank you for sharing that. When we listen and we pay attention to death, we can be called to live life just a little more fully. I think we have to appreciate things more and stop being so mean and angry and judgmental. It's not serving us any purpose. I don't want to be the person that is remembered for her hate or that she wasn't kind or that she was judgmental. I know in my heart that that's not what people will say about me. And that makes me happy. Is there anything you'd like to add, Gabby? Any words of wisdom? Well, you guys covered so many great... This was a great conversation. I cried. I laughed. I felt things. I imagine walking away today feeling stuff. Like I feel so many things right now. And ironically, I think the thing I feel most is deep gratitude for the work I'm doing. I love this work. And I am really grateful that 
I get invited to sit at a bedside and to share the things that I have learned that might just be what that person needs to find peace. I think if I was going to give any wisdom at all, it would be to savor each day, to make sure the people you know and love feel that from you and that you don't wait for the bedside to say the things. Thank you, Gabby. We want to make sure that our listeners know where and how to find you. We know you do some amazing work and you've got some amazing books out there that people would be interested in. So how can people find you? Everything is on my website. It's uh, www.thehospiceheart.net. There's blogs, there's poems, there's a bunch of podcast interviews where this will be, and also links to my books. Everything's there, and I do teach classes as well. And so, yeah, come and visit me. I would love to see you somewhere or take a class or just say hi. Gabby, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you again for your time, for your wisdom, for your kind words that you've shared with everybody. Thank you for making this such an enjoyable conversation and for inviting me to have it with you. Now, I love that we're able to talk about death and have some laughs and call it enjoyable. It can be. Yeah. And so we're grateful for you and the work that you do. and. We're blessed to be in this space with you. So thank you. Well, I feel the same way. Thank you very much for today. This was really a very nice way to start the day. Be sure to catch the next episode of the Dishing Doulas podcast and more at www.dnint.com. And be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform. You can send any questions or comments to admin at ddnint.com and connect with us at Death Doula Network International on both Facebook and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you for listening to the Dishing Doulas podcast, where we're changing the world's approach to death and dying, one conversation at a time.